Hi, uh, this is uh, Tony Silva. And Charles Wiz. And welcome to episode 23, uh, Two Teachers Talking. Charles and I get together to talk about teaching. Uh, good ideas, bad ideas, and things that just baffle us. Um, today, changes. Uh, that are truly baffling. <laughs> always, <laughs> always, always. And uh, uh, the one constant. Uh, we've both been here for a long time, over 20 years each. Uh, 25 well, we years, here. right? We yeah, both came in '88, right? '88, yeah. I, I, but I was gone. I went back for a few years. But other than years. that, I mean, continuous. Yeah, through all the way through. Okay. And since then, so much, almost everything has changed, right? Uh, students, their needs, uh, the kind of places where we teach, the uh, kind the, of teaching we do, the kind of teaching we do, the world, ourselves. I mean, we've gotten older. Not uh, really. <laughs> the world has gotten younger. Everybody else gets older, but we don't, right? Right. And you know, here, and here we are with the looking at the beginning of a new year, and it's our last chance during the break to kind of take a look back, take stock, hitch up the britches, uh, buckle down for another year. That's true. It's oh. going to be starting very, very yeah. soon. Got to get behind the mule. It's Tom Waits' song, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Good catch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, get behind the mule. That's mule variations, I believe. Good. Yeah, for any of you who haven't listened to Tom Waits, definitely an interesting thing to do. Yeah, get on the mule in the morning and plow. That's right. Okay. So, so what was it like when you got here? I mean, it's, it was a different world, obviously. Um, wow. Well, I came over here in 88, hmm. uh, and I had a job at an Eikaiwa in Fujinomiya, which is a s city, I guess, of 100,000 people right at the base of Mount Fuji. Um, that was kind of trippy. I mean, I didn't know anything about Japan. I think my entire knowledge of Japan was based on Kurosawa films. Um, but starting out in an Eikaiwa was very, very different from what I'm doing now. Mm. And that's the big difference was, you know, being in an English conversation school where I think I was teaching 20 hours a week and I would be teaching elementary school kids, kindergarten kids, junior high school, high school kids, and then adults as well as company classes. Mm. So it was quite a wide range. So I think one of the biggest differences is that the demographic I teach to has definitely narrowed. I basically teach undergraduate and graduate students, don't have any private classes, don't have any more company classes. And the uh, that, I think, is a big difference, and also the fact that it's 25 years later. And all my students seem... The number of students who are older than me is declining. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How about for you, Tony? Um, the same, kind of. I mean, the, the kind of students that, I've te that I teach also has changed. Like you, when I first came... My first year here, I was uh, at an Kaiwa with the same you know, diversity of classes where there is... Um, you know, businessmen coming in, uh, high school kids trying to improve mm. their English for their entrance exams, company lessons, all right. that kind of thing. Uh, but for me, maybe the because um, that because the Aikaiwa world is is really a little, it's really quite different from pretty much. Once you leave it, it's it's very different. You know, if you're in it, it's it's one thing. It's really kind of a separate world. But f to at the when I came, when I left and I came back. I came back in 1991. And um, it was this was at a Semongako, which is 
It's kind of in between. It, it's more similar to university teaching uh, than it is to a kaiwa, but there, there are distinct differences. It's a business, and it's uh, semongako for for people outside of Japan who don't know. It's a it's a, it's a different kind of school. It's a kind of a cross between a community college and a technical school. Um, some of them are very specifically focused, for example, on travel or on hairdressing or on computer skills. Um, the one that I taught at was more general. Uh, more general in focus and uh, had a lot of English majors and a lot of people are interested in, and, and we had a great range people who were, um, you know, uh, an inch away from institutionalization at one end and then graduates from universities who wanted uh, to improve their interpretation translation skills. So um, I came back to that as a full-time teacher in 1991 and just a, a little story to, to break us into how different the world was. Um, this is 1991 again, and I'm coming from the United States, uh, a period of 20 years or so of pretty strong influence of feminism and equal rights and so forth, um, and came into the environment here, the Simongako, and then the spring of the year, the Continuing students, had, it's, a small, it's a relatively small school, maybe 600 students at the time. Uh, the continuing students host a party, a Shinkan Kompa, for the incoming students. And uh, teachers are invited, students are invited, and mingling is accepted and welcomed. And at this party, which from me and my perspective, uh, on this continuum of things, this was just shockingly way too close to an orgy to anything <laughs> anything that should be involving faculty and students um you know a little uh circle chain of massage of the teacher student teacher students and so on and so on so and this um, was normal back then this was this was the world back then that was japan in 1991 uh with all other kinds of things in the, that that world has changed. And it was, it was kind of our mantra at the time. It sounds like, well, Japan's never going to change. It's, it's not changing. And somehow right underneath our feet, it changed so <laughs> much. This is a very good point because mm. do, you do hear a lot that Japan has not changed. Oh, Jesus. And even though in terms of gender equality, Japan is still not where it needs to be. I mean, it's unbelievably low-rated mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. by the United... What is it, 120 out of 137? Something mm. frightening. But it's, and it's, and it's ironic because it's, it's, not, it's not a linear thing. It's, it's not something that you can... like. It, the numbers don't tell the whole story at all, but go ahead. Well, they never do, but yeah. <laughs> let me finish mm. <laughs> because that's what oh, I was going to say. Oh, I was sorry. going to say oh. that that's, you can't do that, but that has truly changed quite a bit that um, the behaviors that I witnessed in the beginning would never be accepted now. Oh, absolutely. Even the, and that the illusion, again, as I say, I hear that Japan doesn't change, that very little progress is being made. There's been a lot of changes in compared to when I came here, maybe not as much as I would have liked or what other people would have liked, but it is making progress. But I do know about these parties, mm-hmm. I, right, mm. that just would never... Well, and I don't know if that happened in the United States or in, an, in a Western country, but well, we had um, like, there were occasional uh, like, for example, as an English major, there were occasional if you, you know, in the, as you're a senior or a graduate student, you had wine and cheese kind of get-togethers at the professor's house at the end of the semester, mm. but 
that was it. I mean, it was a very formal, I mean, no touchy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's another way that things have definitely changed is in terms of alcohol and Mm -hmm. the relationship to alcohol. Mm. That it used to be that being drunk was um, a legitimate excuse for your behavior. Wasn't that an interesting thing? Yeah, absolutely. That whole idea that when I was first confronted with that concept, it's like, wow. How convenient. (laughs) Well, that was part of it. But my my first impression was like, what a different way of looking at the world. Right. And then I I says, oh, hmm. Yes. Yes, exactly. It was the difference of coming from America where your behavior is never excused. Right. Even if you had drank too much and you did something that was inappropriate, you were still held responsible. <laughs> well, that, that that also has changed in the United States. Really? <laughs> the whole notion of personal responsibility um, is also kind of going by the wayside here. It's always somebody else's fault. You, you, if you slip and fall, you call your lawyer before you call the ambulance. Right. And I think that's one of the differences. Somebody was ex- asking me, what's it like to live in Japan? And I said, well, you know, in Japan, you could... It's not so much, but you remember how you could walk across a sidewalk and a shop would have its sign out on the sidewalk and the and the, the electrical cord would be running along on the sidewalk? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah. And, I, I try, right, and I was explaining to people that in America, if you trip over that electric cord, you sue somebody. <laughs> and in Japan, if you trip over the cord, somebody kind of goes, well, you were clumsy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, it's Ironically, very, very different. Yeah. But interesting. So, yeah, they're very different um, – in terms of how women are treated, responses to alcohol. I think also the whole sense or perception of Japan's place in the world has definitely changed since. Absolutely. And that has a huge impact on our, on what we do, our students, their right. futures, and how we teach, I think. And I think that's a good lead into bringing this back towards the teaching aspect. Right? Okay, good. Uh, because in 88, that was the peak of the bubble, I think, you know, Japanese companies were buying Rockefeller Center. This was the model of efficiency. Uh, the Americans were scared of the Japanese <laughs> yeah, right. taking over. Now we, it's again. we got off the plane and it burst. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bubbles do burst. But it's right. the timing, damn it, the timing. I, I know. I you know. I often think about that because um, for those people who have not <laughs> been here that do. long, right? Because we know people who got here about seventy-two or seventy-four. Or, or even early '80s, right? I actually know somebody who was has who has been in Japan since 1949. Talk oh about wow, wow! Yeah, that's my, my that's my friend Arthur in Tokyo who was yeah 1960s for me. Yeah, okay, but um, interesting stories about things. Hmm. But the idea of all these changes going on, so. How do missing the people who came in the 70s, um, I remember just everybody had a full-time tenure job with a BA, and they were like professors. Yes. And, and they, they had and no they English are. background teaching, right? And, and some are. of those people are still still <laughs> teaching. <laughs> They're your and, boss. But, on the, but hey. Well, they're my the be- boss, I should the, say. The best teacher I ever knew, the best teacher I ever Excellent. knew was one of those people. Didn't have a background in English teaching, had a BA in, I think, biology, came to Japan, um, became an English teacher. But this is uh, this guy was the, the greatest teacher I'd ever known, um, a guy by the name of um, Leslie, who used to teach out in the Kobe area. But a anyway. Real, real, just before you have a real interesting topic for the future, just to kind of log it to like, yeah, um, that notion of a, of a natural teacher versus, you know. Yes. Become, yeah, that, that's a big one. 
Actually, no, it's the same thing as a natural athlete versus the athlete who practices and does better than their ability. I, okay. I've answered that question. We can move on to the next okay, one. Okay. <laughs> okay. So how things have changed and how, let's say, that has affected us as teachers and our teaching. What do you think? Well, I, we've got a, a couple of different ways to slice that. One, I, I guess let's, as is my want, let's start with the students. Um, yeah, our students, uh, we're, again, we're talking about primarily about university teaching here, and we're talking about 18, 19-year-olds coming into the university. Most of my students are first-year students. Um, so that means that they were born in, oh, I don't want to do this math, but I will. They were born in, what, 1994? 95 or so, yeah. Oh, okay. And um, so the students are born in uh, 1994. The students who were born in 1970, they are born into you know, very, very different worlds. Uh, mm. And they are facing very different worlds. And um, as, you, as you said, the Japan's position in the world structure uh, very, very different then and now. And... Uh, you know, internationally and within the country itself in terms of what a university education is, what it means, what this, what a university graduate can expect. Um, and we've gone through kind of a, a few cycles. Um, I think when we first got here, uh, the, our first wave of students were still kind of hungry. Uh, they... Uh, they there 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 was no there was no external pride there was no chip on their shoulder they were they're pretty much very serious kind of what still is kind of the stereotype of the asian student and mm. then there was a a, a a gradual i don't know how gradual it was but certainly a, a slip away um where we went through a wave of um a long period maybe 10 years 15 years of dealing with students who were born into an age of entitlement and brought that with them to the classroom. And you really had the feeling that uh, as the teacher, you were, uh, <laughs> you know, they were the customer and you were the, the clerk and you were there to please them. Uh, and I think, can correct me if I'm wrong, Charles, I think I'm seeing a change now that the students don't have that so much. Uh, they're coming in with a very different attitude with a, you know, the, the image that they have of themselves and their country is not like the future ruler of the world, but, um, you know, pretty much like everybody else is like, you know, we got to kind of get by somehow and this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I think we're, it, what, it was about 94, 95. Started to shift back. When, or no, that's when it went kind of sour. Mm. Oh, no, I think for me, for me, it was much before that. Really? For me, yeah, because yeah, yeah. from 88 until about 90, maybe it was about 94, but I think 88 to about 93. My hump is different, years. yeah. Okay. But um, there was a period, you're right, where students seemed to feel that they had an entitlement. I remember a student turning to me and going, you're only a professor at this school because you're a native speaker. You have no qualifications. Hmm. And I was like pretty shocked, but I guess I got my revenge because after <laughs> two years after that student graduated, I ran into them working at a Starbucks. Excellent. <laughs> and I, I, it was, it really took me a, a lot to bite my lip mm. because, you know, the idea that you would talk to a professor that way. Oh, I mean, yeah. <gasps> uh, here's a big, Yeah, right. Especially, right. So, not, not only for us, but especially here. That's a yes. huge transgression. That, that, that yes. is major. That is... 
a sign of all kinds of things gone wrong with yeah, that and kid. That w- and that was, I think, those were the kids who were raised in the bubble, I think. They, they, had, a, they had a big chip on those, yeah. on those but shoulders. Of, but every, you know, <clears throat> right, every generation has their thing. Well, but I think we, did, we, right we did too, right? I mean, it takes it one to know one. A different way. Well, maybe. Right. Yeah. I was, I was You're angry. a perfect student, right? I, no, I was, <laughs> I was, well, when I, I was a good student, I was a serious student. Um, I was angry, but that's because I was trying to search for something, you know, the meaning of life, right? That old idea of the liberal arts student, where's truth? What are, what are the boundaries? What is the foundation? I'll build things upon. But I think that's a big difference that you're right, that that did go that way. And that recently the students don't act like that. They seem to have more doubts and an understanding that their situation is more fragile than it was. Yeah, very much so. But on the other hand, a big difference is, you know, I can be walking on campus or walking in a hallway, and if a student bumps me, they don't say, sue me, my son. That's a a big – there's a real big range of of behavior in this aspect. And uh, I'm not sure how much of it – I'll go even further. I, I think I do. I think of inkling that it has a whole lot to do with what high school they went to, and it has a whole lot to do with the culture of the university yes. that, okay. that you're teaching or attend, they're attending. I'm, I'm just mentioning it in terms of there was a period where it didn't matter what oh, school they went to. Yeah, right. There was a period right. when and that it never just, happened. It's just an example of you know how things have changed. But more, more importantly, I think, is that students are – to a, a much higher degree. And this could be because of where I'm teaching, because I think one of the big differences for you and I is where we started and mm-hmm. where we're teaching now, mm-hmm. that we've been fortunate. I mean, I know I've been very, very fortunate to <clears throat> yes. be able to basically move. I mean, yes, you chain. were. I mean, yes, I was. <laughs> right. And we do teach at some very good schools. I, you know, yes. where I think a lot of teachers would be very envious. I got an yes. email from a student asking me for, um, recommended books for reading over the vacation. Yes, right. And so I don't. There's a lot of teachers I know who would never have You've, the opportunity exactly, to get an email like exactly, that. So exactly, exactly. But I think the students. Um, the best way to put it was about eight years ago or so, when a student turned to. There was a discussion in the class about education and what what you know, the goals of education were. And the student said, I was trained from, you know, basically in junior high school and high school to answer questions, to give the answer that was expected, to not vary from the expected answer. And then I get told in college that I'm supposed to think creatively and out of the box. And this is what companies are expecting of me. Who changed the terms of the agreement while I wasn't looking? <laughs> very, very self-perceptive. I mean, very... but that was their argument. Was yeah. What? Why, I, did... I, that's fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so imagine, imagine going through your education, then getting to university, and suddenly having people demanding that you think and exercise your your brain in ways that was penalized before in many ways. Yes. And for people who are outside of the Japanese education system, outside of Japan, it's kind of what's what's happening in America is what goes on here. People are now teaching to the test. What's, yeah, that's starting. That's starting. In America. But in Japan, it's a real intense thing that students basically are focused on 
passing entrance exams for junior high school and then they get to junior high school they want to pass the entrance exam for the good high school then they want to pass the entrance exam for the good college and there is not a lot of time spent on developing critical thinking creative thinking problem solving skills support for thinking out of the box and that is now an expectation for them mm. also that university is not a free ride anymore that just because you go to a good school um, if you go to one of the top schools, it's like America, you're guaranteed a job, right? If you yeah. go to a good Ivy League school, you're going to get a job. But if you're at a second tier school, it used to be you still were pretty much guaranteed a good job. But I don't think that's true anymore. Correct. So that's another way the students have changed is that realization. Yeah, the, the students and the, and the world around them. Yeah, it's a very different thing. And the reasons they're studying English and, and why they're doing what their expectations are after graduation are very, very different. Mm. And so do you want to kind of explain a little bit about um, the teaching of English, why students would study English and their expectations about graduation? Because that's, I'm interested to hear what you have to say compared to what I think about that. Um, yeah, I think, ironically, I think 20 years ago, students, when they sat down to study English, they really did consider it... Um, of course, not only something practical for job hunting and for uh, something that they might use because, of course, they were going to conquer the world. Um, but it was uh, something that they understood or anticipated being um, part of their lives in the future. I hmm. think that right now you really have a dichotomy. You have a certain percentage of students who really do want to make English a part of their future, and they do see that international work, life, etc., as as part of their lives. But again, I'll, I'll preface to say, underscore what Charles says, um, yeah, that's at, a, at very good schools, but not only good, good schools, but like some of the really good students, they really have that notion still, but mm. there's a dichotomy, and there's a split, and then there's the, 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 the mass, the masses, um, for whom it is because become English English study has become uh, kind of something that you have to need to do. Um, the there's this you know standardized test that people take that companies look at as one of the criteria for hiring mm -hmm. uh, the TOEIC exam. Uh, that they you know a good score means you know a good student, a hard worker, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But most of them do not see. Uh, English as something that is going to be part of their future. And uh, one of the other changes very much related to this, because we talked about um, the wave of students, and, and Charles had a hump and I had a hump. My hump came, began and ended earlier than his with the students that he's teaching. Um, but what I've noticed in my students this year, which I hope, doesn't become a, a, a trend, but I, I fear that it will. Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before is this swing to the right and this surprising increase in, in Japanese nationalism mm. and consequent and, and with that isolationism um, where a lot of my students, and this includes um, better students at better universities, don't anticipate um, the need for English, perversely, because it's exactly in this kind of now underdog position where that kind of leg up, that kind of advantage would seem to be um, 
from from my perspective, a real advantage. Um, it's being totally disregarded, and I just don't get it. Hmm. Yeah, but I wonder how much it looks the same for the United States, for example, when before the Obama administration, where we had the Bush administration, America seemed moving to the right, much more conservative. And now I think there's a sense America's more liberal, but I'm not sure. And I don't want to even get into that argument. Right, right, right. Well, and, and countries do swing right, left, right, and right, and left. And then we're just really kind of talking about how it affects us and our right. listeners as teachers and in education and things. But it, it's, it's key, right? Because, because as English teachers, we are kind of the the vanguard of internationalism and et cetera, et cetera. And if that becomes a, there's a stigma attached to that again, as it was once, <clears throat> if there's a, is a stigma attached to English proficiency as there once was, I don't know if that ever really went away. Um, then that, that affects how we teach and how the attitudes of our students and you know, the, the atmosphere in every classroom that we walk into. Yeah, again, I think it depends on the school and where it's located. Uh, since I'm in the Yokohama and Tokyo area, it's a little bit different. It's a more cosmopolitan area. Mm-hmm. The yeah, Good point. It might be very, very different than what I'm experiencing in Osaka. Right. Yeah, Well, because since I'm bouncing back and forth, it's, it's always interesting to see how things are. But the idea that as Japan's economic, Japan's now what the third largest economy in the world. So there's a problem of aging. There's obviously a lot of social problems. That the idea that you just pointed out, Tony, that I find interesting. It's a very interesting point. Is that one would think that English or learning a foreign language, for example, Chinese, that that would increase in importance, give vis-a-vis the position mm-hmm. of Japan in the world. So maybe that's a kind of knee-jerk response. I'm not sure on the part. But I think you're right that students are getting more conservative, though. Mm-hmm. I yeah. would agree on that observation. Yeah, I've seen it's, it, especially in this last year, in so many different levels. It's, it's, it's Actually, it's so such a, such a great degree that it's, it's a little bit disconcerting because it – you know, you, you teach for a while and you think you, you know your kids and come in and, and suddenly you know, their ideas are different. It's like, mm. <laughs> what, what's this? Um, I'm not. And yes, you think, I, well, okay, okay, it's one class, it's one kid. But no, then you see the pattern repeat and it's like, uh-oh, I got I to gotta, I gotta, make an adjustment here. Right. Maybe that's the thing is that the idea that my professors would be more liberal than me. Mm. more progressive than me mm. would have been a surprise when I was a college student. And I mm. think as a university educator, the idea that I am more liberal than my students is surprising to me that I just assume that because the amazing thing I think of being a teacher is that no matter what I keep getting older every year, but they're still 18 to 22. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that. Right? That's a, that's I've a mentioned really that a couple good. of times. Yeah, yeah. That we've, I think, talked about that for me, and this is kind of trying to tie this in, that my students seem to be more conservative than I would mm. expect in some ways. Though, 
the big culture gap isn't that it's between myself as an American and there as being Japanese. Right, because we've been here for 20-some years, and we're, we've adjusted as much as we're going to adjust, but we can kind of anticipate things. And so we got one, not one di- by we've things, got that yeah. one dichotomy of, of foreigner and Japanese, but... But it's not as big as the age, the, the, the age gap. Mm. I think that's the real culture gap for me. Is I'm at a point where I don't know a lot of the music that they listen to. Remember when um, we were students and our teachers didn't know what? How could you not know about Jimi Hendrix? Well, I, I, for for me, I'll, I'll I'll still beg on the cultural to the American Japanese dichotomy on that. I don't know that it's generational. If I was younger, that I would listen to the the stuff that my students listen to. But your point is is well taken. That really is very very big. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Because I find myself saying things that my professors used to say. I remember when I was uh, doing, um, we were taking, well, it was an English class on modern American or modern English literature. And we were reading, I guess it was The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. And there's a Greek um, and the Latin epigrams in the beginning, I believe. And the professor was shocked that we didn't have basic Latin. He says, how could you be in this English language program? And, how you know, could you have graduated from high school and not without knowing Latin? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, in my day and age, you would, you know, you would not be able to pass the class. And I'm just wondering whether that's just a generational thing. I look at my students and say, I would never treat a professor this way. I would be more prepared. So, and that's what I mean by the age gap uh, that is so much more because I have a basic understanding of Japanese culture to the point that I guess I'm not surprised or shocked by anything anymore. I'm never going to completely understand it, but I'm shocked by age and I can't, sorry, just, you know, I can't tell whether or not the things that I see are because Japanese culture has changed or is it something that is governed by age? Yeah, yeah, and I want to, I want to, yeah, that that you added that, and that's the muddle that I wanted to add. It's like it's not just the Western and the Japanese, but that neither of these things are are static objects. I mean, they're dynamic systems. And the Japanese culture and Japanese society itself is changing so much uh, that you, as you and I here, sit and struggled for understanding. Probably. It, it, underscores your point it's like yeah the older japanese generation also sits back and struggles to understand what is happening um and it really is a it's a big shift it's a big change and it's not necessarily yeah yeah that generational gap that's that gets basically what it is and i guess what we're experiencing is not just as you said not a western japanese thing but it is a old Japanese, young Japanese thing, where that affects things in so many areas, whether it's gender or um, attitudes toward the traditional Japanese ideas of hierarchy and giddy, um, the idea of uh, responsibility and obligation, uh, and all the way down the line, it's shifting and changing in so many different ways so quickly that for us old folks, um, we, we don't don't get it's hard for us to keep keep a handle on that, be able to communicate in a, in the way that we used to do when that gap wasn't so big. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just 
it's kind of um I see that with fashion. Mm. Where I just like how can yeah, you wear sure, those sure. clothes? Right? Fashion and, or music or any language, you know, slang and stuff like that. This is true. It's very true. So that's I think a big change. And We've talked about this before, so I just want to kind of shift the discussion a little bit, is that we hear the term post-industrial bandied around so much. And, you know, as things have changed, as Japanese youth culture has changed, and Japanese, I think the economic situation has changed, this idea of the role of a worker the role of a person in a modern society is, I think, one of the major things that's really affecting students and I think is huge shift here, causing them a lot of difficulties that might explain certain attitudes. So, because, talk a little bit more about that because that shift in the society here is, is, is huge. Okay. And I'm not an expert at this, and this is, as is everything, it's my personal opinion. But I, from what I can understand... Japanese education seemed to be very successful at training people for doing very exact work, being very careful, making, in other words, quality control, which is what Japan used to be famous for. And by the way, talk about a big difference in Japan. The idea that something like Fukushima would happen in Japan, I think would have been, we would just in the 1980s, we would have said, come on, what kind of science fiction movie are you watching? No, no, absolutely. It's an absolute impossibility. There was a period of time Could, where couldn't have that, that could happen in America easily. We'd be that sloppy, but not in Japan. And that the education system was very good at making sure that people would do their jobs carefully, exactly, that the room for error was almost zero. And... I have this weird theory. I don't know if it's a weird theory. I have a theory uh, that the basic decline in Japan's influence on the world stage and economically is not because of the economic bubble exploding. But to me, it, it, if, and I think I might be able to actually I should ask some economists about this, but I think it coincides with the rise of software as king, that things moved away from hardware into more software and really good point and not only the software but just the internet exactly yeah. right and that that the way that you would treat employees the way that you would organize a company where creative creativity um, adaptation the ability to run with new ideas is not something that was built into the education system, was not built into the industrial organization or in the, in the corporate culture. So I think that's a big problem when we talk about trying to make the post-industrial era more concrete. Um, and I don't know, this is a pet peeve of mine, but there are things, for example, the... Um, website design, the understanding of user usability are ideas I think that oh, I hear you chuckling in the I'm, background. I'm biting so hard on my tongue. Oh, please go ahead, go ahead, go no, ahead. No, no website. You said web. You said website design. You 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 understand. You you have the same feeling that oh. I have, right? Oh, yeah. I just I don't understand. So something is happening where there's not been the ability to under, as you said, to understand or comprehend all these new ways of interacting and engaging. And I'm not sure if it's because things are rule-governed, but 
there is a different expectation of how we use things, how we interact with the world, especially things that are digitally based and uh, that things haven't caught up and that this is causing a lot of trouble for our students and it's causing a lot of trouble for companies and that this is maybe the tipping point to you know, steal a phrase where this is what has to be addressed. But anyway, I want to hear why you're chuckling about the, the Oh no, the just website. website design. I mean, if it, it, it's it just just pick just pick any website, just look at any Japanese website and look at it and compare it to and this is something I used to do and when I used to teach for a number of years, uh, internet English or computer English, uh, website design and we'd look at like for example the US Ford webpage and the Japanese web page and then we'd look at the Amazon Japan and the Amazon US page and con compare and contrast and the design elements and all that but um yeah that 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 whole interface design thing which is and I I don't pretend to understand it I was just pointing out the differences um but and I want to say in despite that and which is which is certainly true and I'm not arguing anything to say you'll get these eruptions of innovative brilliance for example, uh, the uh, this week, uh, someone sent me a link, and it's not new. I've seen it like a year ago, maybe. But it is, uh, it's a website. It's uh, it's a Japanese website, and it's some some kind of tech hive um, seed module where they're working on advanced advanced ideas. And it looks like a pen, and it looks like and there's like a little lens at the tip of the pen. You say, oh, well, that's a pen with a camera. Well, no. You open up the, the pen, and it's got a tripod, and the lens is a projector, and forward it projects the screen onto the wall in front of you, and there's a like projector that comes out of the thing that projects a light keyboard onto the surface in front of you, and you, cape, you type onto the surface, and the little pen device is able to read your input and basically it's a PC in a pen. This is a brilliant, innovative Japanese idea. It's mm. what we think about 30 years ago as the, you know, technological leader, Japan. Now uh, it's, I, but now I, it's, but now it's the exception that proves the rule. Go ahead. I want to just to interrupt is I think that's going to, support what we've talked about before which is that hardware yes. when it comes to hardware Japan has been extremely successful and take the Walkman remember when the Walkman was that incredible idea that you I could do. put a cassette into a little thing and it would work incredibly well and what's the company that replaced Sony? Apple and Apple is noted for its user interface it's the way that the software works on the machine rather than the machine itself, if we think about it. Mm. And I think you just made a very, very good point that that idea of a, a PC and a pen strikes me as, yes, Japan's very, very good at that. Yeah. And it's, it, well, like with Apple, there's, there's a question of hardware and software, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, before we get to us personally as teachers, the other thing about the external factors and, and things that are changing things um, that I think for teachers maybe more more important is the shift in the expectations of schools on teachers. Um, the and it's a it's a market thing. 
it's you know when when uh, Charles and I came here, it was not unheard of to talk to somebody else fresh off the boat and say, "Yeah, they got off the plane and they're waiting. You know, they got their bags and they were trying to get to the bus or the taxi, and someone accosts them and says, "Hey, do you need a job?" I've heard stories about. Yes, that. I, I, everybody did. This was. This but is I've the never way. had one. I didn't happen <laughs> to me. Well, I, but I've heard stories about that. I've usually had somebody waiting for me. But, um, yeah, that was that was the way it was. Jobs were like that. And we talked about just before we got here where you could show up here with a bachelor's degree and end up as a tenured professor. Mm. Um, that has changed so much uh, in the 20 years. And, and so, interestingly, this will, this will be a, 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 incredulous to anybody who is not in Japan – for example, for, for part-time teachers, um, salaries, one of the things that – that's one of the things that really hasn't changed. We talked about a little bit about deflation. But um, f- for teachers doing private lessons or for part-time teachers, salaries basically have not changed in 20 years. Mm. Um, when I came here in 1991, uh, my salary didn't – Double, but it was a significant increase. Um, but, and that was a, a full time position at, at the Simongako. And actually, when I finally cut myself off and was to, to do just part time work, um, I actually made, made more and am making more in the end. Um, but my salary has not changed. At all since 1995, it's dependent only on the number of classes I teach. So it doesn't matter how good of a teacher I am. There's no incentive for me to teach better. I mean, just to, you know, of course, don't don't have any complaints. Show up, don't be late. No student complaints, um, and then you're okay. Uh, but no one will pay you for being a better teacher. They'll, you'll only get paid more if you teach more classes. Hmm. And of course, the more classes you teach, the quality of your teaching takes a you know. A, you know Proportional downward slope, That's and, very true. and there you have it. And uh, it's and it's getting much more, much worse. Sadly, in the last five years or so. Okay, I think that's that's true, and I'd have to agree with you that it seems things have been kind of flat economically. The flat economically, and for example, like our semesters have increased, whereas they were always a nominal fifteen weeks. And you had a week for final exams, which no one gave, so it made it 14, and you were allowed two or three six days. So you, so you well, maybe 12, no, I 13. Still, I do, no, I remember 12-week semesters. Yeah, and now they're 15 and 16 weeks. And if you miss a class, they need to be made up. And so your workload has increased by 20%, and your salary has increased by zero. So that's effectively, effectively a 20% salary decrease. You can look at it that way. But why don't we... Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's move on to us. How how it affects us in the classroom. Yes, good. And I want to tie this in that it seems like this is kind of rambling around, but basically trying to give people in the audience or even just, you know, myself a better sense of what has happened in the real world and how it's affected myself as a teacher. Good. Going back to all those basic things, right, how using the example of Apple versus Sony, the economy, Japan's role, is when I first got here... There was definitely – I remember that 
in interviews or when people asked me to teach, right, at a school, they would say, what we really want is we want our students to have contact with a foreign person. We want them to experience what it's like to be, you know, engaged and interacting with somebody who's non-Japanese. And that was kind of an original thing. And then it moved more into English education as I kind of moved up in the system and started teaching more at universities. But what I find now is that my view, the way I see myself as an educator, is quite different from how I saw myself as an educator 20 years ago, because now I feel I have this significant amount of responsibility to expand my students' horizons in terms of critical thinking and creative thinking and problem-solving skills that they're going to need in the world. It's very different from the cultural ambassador trying to open their minds to different ways of thinking or the possibility of cultural variability and other things along those lines. I don't know. What about yourself, Tony? I, I would say that my, for me, my pro progression has been parallel to yours. But my question is to you is like, how much of that is the a difference in the students you're teaching? Well, like what kind of schools that you're teaching at and the students that you're teaching? Because um, when, and, and the reason I say that is because when I um, uh, began teaching, yeah, I, the students that I was teaching, that seemed to be their need, their need to, again, 25 years ago, their need to be, seems to be, have been that cultural interaction. These days, it seems to me that my students' needs a little bit different. They can get that cultural interaction in different ways, the internet, right? I mean, the, the technology and access. I mean, there's, there's all different kinds of ways, but what they need more is the critical thinking. So, yeah, I agree with you. And I think my my, chain, my progression is exactly the same as yours or is parallel anyway. I just don't know why it is exactly all the different reasons. Yeah, that's a good point. But I see myself as doing more of that. I find myself having to, in the classroom, push my students in different ways before it was to get them to look at their expectations and their values. And right, as you mentioned that it's because it's different kinds of students, but the problem solving, critical thinking, creative thinking skills. But I also find myself having to, I hate to say this, I guess I sound like a grumpy guy, teach them manners. No. Right? Yes. Cause and yeah, again, because we were here way back when, when manners were, you know, heart and staple of a package, right? That's what we expected. Right. There was a period of time where I remember I would go back to the United States and be shocked at people's manners compared well, to Japanese manners. How about it? Yes, exactly. That is, yeah. You, exactly. you know where I'm going I'm, with this one, oh, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And now when you go back to the United States, what do you find? I can I can tell you the day it was it was about it was a little bit surprisingly long ago it was about in the year two thousand and I came back to Chicago for my for one of my my visits home and I stopped at uh, at the after the I got out of the airport and I go to the car rental office and I was just bowled over by their effort um, by their customer service. Um, they knew my name. They grabbed my bags. Can you? Would you like a 
a bottle of water. I was like, I feel like I'm in Japan, but they're speaking English and doing it right. That was, yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, I just find that people open doors, say thank you, you're welcome, excuse me, more often. So there's so the reason I mention that is that I'm trying to respond to what you're saying about the students being different and the culture mm. being different and how what I'm doing basically is responding to surface phenomena because I'm not in a position to make judgments about cultural changes. I'm not a cultural critic. And maybe that's an important point that as an educator, I have to look at what I'm given, what the needs of the students are, and then how can I most create opportunities for them to really reach, you know, their optimal performance and increase their options for the future that goes back to the teaching for the future, which I'm just obsessed with mm. the last few months still without any answers. So I really do see that things have changed so much from when I originally got here. And as you've pointed out and the needs of the students have changed and they're in a much more precarious situation. I, the, I, the fact that a, student graduating from a Japanese university would be competing for a position at a company with, let's say, a foreign student who speaks Japanese fluently, reads and writes fluently, is, I think, something that students 15, 20 years ago would say would never have happened. Yeah, I w yeah, that was actually something that we talked about before I really wanted to trail back to, but you know, we're, we're getting cut along. But that whole notion of the university education and what it meant in terms of employment's in employment right. security, um, it's just that's completely shattered. I mean, the the time was when students entered a university, especially a good university, they didn't need to con concern themselves about a job after university. It, it was basically guaranteed. It was an unwritten contract. You're gonna, you, you got it made. You're done. Um, that is no longer the case at all, and it shows in the way the the you know the way the students are but to get away from the, the maybe away from the cultural stuff and like to finish up with just like with the um, uh just us side as hard as it is to do to divorce ourselves from that um our own teaching and how it's changed you know kind of independent from like the the maelstrom of cultural change around us um like for me um, I think of it, it's like one big change, and and probably you know teachers with experience will nod their heads, and teachers, younger teachers, will go mm -hmm, uh, might react. But the, the shifting the emphasis from um, from teaching to learning, uh, and kind of understanding that the dynamics of learning and and what is useful energy expended, and what is wasted energy expended it's like when you're a younger teacher uh, you think that if you however you interpret it teach harder then the student is going to learn more uh, and you, as as time goes on you kind of learn it's like well no if you can kind of construct um, activities tasks projects problem solving uh, correctly you your role actually in, in, after you've done that set that in motion, um, there's not that much teaching involved. I mean, the teaching is in the construction of the project. The learning that happens is independent of you. And it takes a certain amount of experience and self-confidence to let go of that and to 
let them learn without you, if need be, uh, mm. while always being there. And uh, go ahead. No, I was just nodding yeah. <laughs> in agreement that I often say to people that the less I do, the less I talk, the more you learn. Exactly. That's because a big it, change. Yeah. I see myself as a designer, that I design environments, I design tasks. It and really is right. the most effective way. Right. This idea. And I think you, you definitely you know, pointed out a real crucial point, this incredible shift from teaching to learning and this belief, I've said this often to people, especially when I'm talking to them about teaching, is that I just don't believe in teaching. I believe you can create opportunities for learning. And that seems to be the way things are going. Also, the movement towards group work, pair work, for example, the idea that students interacting and engaging with each other. And of course, people always like to talk about Vygotsky in this sense, but it's also Piaget, but it's just natural. The idea that students work together and using their knowledge to do things is now just the norm. Whereas before my classrooms were unusual. Mm -hmm. The noisy mm -hmm. classroom would have been unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the interesting, yeah, exactly. And it's it's that having that experience, that confidence to give them that long leash. Um, I had a class this year. Um, it was a decent school, good school, and a, a fairly high-level class. But the class was, and I probably mentioned them before, they were like just overamped on caffeine or amphetamines or whatever. They were just a ball of energy. They were exhausting. And they were just insatiable. I mean, they were just black holes sucking energy, but, and they were so, and they were, they were, they were I imagine for, for a lot of teachers, very hard to control. Uh, but I looked at them and, like, and I understood like, well, they're actually, they're just kind of bored. You got to fill the pipe. You got you to give them enough stuff. You got to give them enough stuff to work with. You got enough stuff to chew on. You got to give them enough unknown stuff. You got to puzzle them and they'll glom right onto it. And mm. uh, uh, other teachers, you know, at this school talked about this class specifically, how, how troublesome were they, how difficult they were to teach. I go, well, yeah, maybe you should try this or try this. Um, but that... Uh, confidence to give, you know, to see that and to really give that class enough leeway, enough space to, and this is another point that I want to make up, to learn the way that they know how to learn. And then you can kind of like see what, what they know, how they know how to learn. And then you can help them. Like you don't, you don't need to come in there and, and enforce your way of learning. They've gotten where they've at. And they, they kind of, you know, again, it's a good school, high level class, Let's assume they know how to learn something. They know something. Observe it, use it, and improve on it. Whether you're teaching science, whether you're teaching English, or whether you're you're teaching music, uh, those kids know how to learn. They've got. It. They know what to do. They've been in school their whole lives. Um, observe what they're doing and learn how to manipulate that to. Mm. Let them to help them learn what you want them to learn. Very well put. Very well put. And this goes back to I think one of our original podcasts was manipulating the environment. Right. Yeah. One of the very and first. I, and it's really true because if, for example, a 
people have experience teaching, let's say, engineering students. We, I teach some engineering students, and I've taught some science you know, students from the science faculty. They mm-hmm. will do mm-hmm. what – they will figure out what they need to do to mm-hmm. get the grade that they want. And some <laughs> of them need an A, and some of them need a B, and they just nail it. You know, they will really do what is needed to make the grade. <laughs> They're operating in a completely different mode, and they and they know right. what they know. They they, they know what they got to do. They they figure exactly. it out. It's like, but so, don't fight them. You know, use right, that exactly. Use that exactly. I know people who say they'll only do the minimum. So set your minimum higher. It's a real easy <laughs> thing. <laughs> but I'm not. I mean, that took years for me to learn, though. I'm not laughing at people. I'm right, saying, exactly. That, we're should, going about. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. But you're the right. difference is now that's understood as being a basic premise of teaching. When we started, there was the idea of the teacher um, as being the person who passed on information and knowledge. And again, I, I've I see myself as times change that you know less and less as a teacher and more and more as a facilitator and just trying to create an environment for them to engage. But I want to just move off to just something slightly different about that. I've noticed about thing differences in teaching, Tony mm-hmm. is the movement away from when I think when we started was communicative based teaching, whatever that meant mm-hmm. and to more of a focus on an understanding on Focusing on form, actually, remember there was a period of time where you didn't teach any grammar, right? Right, right. And right, now right. it's going back to teaching of grammar, right? And it just reminds me of a uh, Sleeper, the Woody Allen movie. <laughs> I know this scene. Yeah, this for the, if it's an old, old Woody Allen comedy. It's really a silly movie. But this guy wakes up. What about 150 years in the future mm-hmm. after falling asleep and? He wakes up, and how does it go? They say, you must be really hungry. And he says, yes, I'd like an avocado tofu sprout sandwich or something to that whole wheat bread. And they go, oh, you don't want to eat that. That's dangerous. And Woody Allen says, no, no, no. A Big Mac French fries and shake are really bad for you. And they say, no, our scientists have discovered exactly the opposite. The Big Mac French fries (laughs) and shake are good for you. And, you know, we see that in science, right, where vitamins are not good, vitamins are good, things are moving. We have a new syllabus. Exactly. And there is <laughs> New a curriculum coming. Right. And here's the difference is before, as a younger teacher, I embraced um, curriculum reform. And now I'm cynical mm. because I realized that in many ways that the curriculum reform is simply reflecting society, the state of the society and what it perceives its needs to be mm. rather than actually being pedagogically based. And, for example, whenever we see curriculum reform, we see these skills have to be taught or these skills have to be taught. But nobody sits around and actually talks about the how of the teaching Mm. when we talk about curriculum reform. Usually it's the what. So I think that's a big difference in myself is that I just assume, as you do, that students either have the skills. If they're at a good school, they know how to study. And if they're not succeeding... I assume they don't have the study skills that they need, and therefore that becomes a focus as well. So my teaching has changed in that it's broadened outside of language teaching, that I need to teach students how to take notes, how to process information, how to summarize, for example. And I don't worry so much about what the current trends are anymore, Mm. because Mm. I assume that it's going to, it's that pendulum swing that just seems to be never ending. 
I don't know. What do you think? I'm, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. It's like I'm. I like to think of myself as pretty inured to the, the trends and so forth. For me, my compass has always been the students. It's like what, not what their needs are. What, why are they there? What do they need to learn? What have they got? What are their skills? What have I got to work with? What are they coming and in where with? Where do they got to go? Yeah, well, what are they coming in with? What do we, what, what I want them to leave with? What is good for them to leave with? What do they need to leave with? And how do you get there? Um, mm. And it's and I've learned that it, we, we, in doing that, there's all different kinds of ways to get there. And it's it's very easy to – you talked about um, the, the classroom management, the class management, room management, um, creating opportunities and so forth. Um, it's, it's, I can't say it's easy cause it's not easy. <laughs> it's really, really hard, but it's, it's, it's not complex, uh, to create that kind of situation. So just fast examples, um, listening class, uh, fairly advanced. This, this actually, this was the, was this the, this might've been the fireballs that I just talked about. And so, yeah, yeah, okay, listening, okay, Paul. They, they, okay, we're students. And I, they pull out the books, like, okay, listen, let's forget the books. Let's do this. Let's, you know. And I hook up uh, a couple of YouTube things. It's like, okay, here, let's listen to the difference between uh, New York pizza and Chicago pizza or New York hot dog and Chicago hot dog. So, so I can forget the book. We're not going to do the book today. We're just going to listen to this. Rapt attention. And they're taking notes on their own because they're completely diverted from the fact that is learning happening? Absolutely. This is a listening class. Their, their ears are inside out. Um, mm. you, you don't need to hammer it in, let it flow, all kinds of things like that. Um, present a problem that needs to be solved rather than uh, present them with an exercise or a handout or something. Uh, for example, reading, rather than have them summarize a reading, it's like, okay, here's a reading. Now you've got to tell that story to somebody else. Right. Uh, mm. You just you create some, uh, some task that seems external to the language itself that removes the anxiety and the schoolwork aspect of the task. Make it something else. Make it a game. Make it a goal. Make it some kind of problem that needs to get solved. You can do all those kinds of things way more often than you realize, and they learn more. Yeah, I think that's really true. That if, and that's, I guess, maybe we both, I think, have moved in the same direction. That mm. I just want, you know, read this and now explain it to your friend. And you explain to your friend what you just read, and now then there'll be a project or some, you know, as I always put into the syllabus, right? And then You'll two people, so for at, example, then two people who heard that story, then together have to, to write a summary of what the original story was, or they have to they have to write a new story based on the information. There you go. Finish it. Stories. What happens next? And then the other group of students either checks it or evaluates it or edits it or amends it or runs with it. Oh, I want to be in our class. <laughs> <laughs> and, right, right, right. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So those are the big changes, but I think it's it's really true. I do a whole, I just do a whole lot less in the class and spend more time thinking about 
the activities or the goals when trying to design things. What I was going to say, though, is that basically my students are usually working on short-term or long-term tasks is how I describe it. Mm -hmm. Right? You're going to have some short tasks to do in classes, and there's going to be things you're going to, that are going to be carrying over from basically week three until the final class, group presentations, group projects. So that's been the big change is that I just don't feel I have to be at the center of the classroom. Right. All. And maybe that's an ego thing, or I, actually, I just think it's a response to seeing what's the most effective way to enable learning. And the fact that I'd even say enable learning rather than teach. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. There it is. That's, I think, indicative. And the fact that I never call myself a teacher any longer, I would describe myself as an educator, but not as a teacher. Right. Because I don't teach. So I don't know if that's that big of a difference, but it's the idea that I don't have to be at the center. I don't have to be, you know, even in terms of when I mean, well, it's a significant I, difference in mindset. Yeah. Right. Sure. But I don't mean just, you know, the center in front of the classroom. I mean, when I'm talking to one, two, three, four, five students, I don't need to be the center. My job more is to facilitate them. Mm. Whereas before I used to tell students a lot of, you know, things when we talk, I'd walk around the classroom and talk to the students and try to have conversations. Whereas now I'm trying to facilitate them communicating with each other. And that's been a big shift, I think, mm. rather than seeing myself as the center. But I'm going to have to really look at these things. And that's what happens during the break, right? Right, right. And like for me, um, yeah, I think like I think about the the changes in my teaching, obviously it's gaining experience and just seeing what works, what doesn't try not to make the same mistakes again. But I think externally, the, the changes that have in, in, you know, informed the changes in my teaching have been the, the kinds of students that I teach, um, whether they were, you know, at the Akaiwa or whether the Simongako or now the, the students that I teach at some, at some of the better universities, um, the change in the students themselves. I mean, we talked about you know the, the attitudes, what they bring to the class with them, um, mm -hmm. all kinds of changes in terms of like you know the gender issues, um, the power differences in the genders, mm -hmm. motivate their, their motivation, the, their future use of English, plans and needs. I mean, all kinds of all those kind of things kind of have changed what what I do. But it's mostly student driven. I think mostly. Mm. I mean, some of it is external, some of it's you know from the schools themselves and things. But um, in terms of trying to do that, obviously, I'd, I'd like to think that I've gotten better at it. But that hasn't changed so much. It's like even when I had when I came here in the early '90s and I was put in charge of um, a study abroad program, and I had to prepare students to to go to Canada for an extended period of time on with very little time. And I, I kind of thought of it as a boot camp. Um, yeah, I kinda, the students are kind of my compass. And it's like, I kind of look at them as like, okay, what do you need? What do you got? And how are we going to get there? Or how close can we get? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, how we get there, I guess, maybe I've gotten, I want to think I've gotten better at doing that over the years. Mm. Yeah, I think the idea that the teacher is a tour guide has changed. Mm. 
right? That I'll take, you know, you join the tour and... Right, right, right. This is stop yeah. A, B, and C, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's an interesting thing. And maybe it's a good time to start winding down and wrapping yep. up. Yep. But I was thinking always that I remember I when I was younger and sometimes I would go to a travel agent and I'd say, I want to go somewhere interesting. <laughs> Give me a trip. And they'd always go, well, where do you want to go? What do you want to see? And I'm like, you're the travel agent. Yeah, tell me what you tell, tell me, me where I go. Right, and that idea. What's my place? And, yeah, this right. is what I want. Where would I, where, you tell me where I want to go. And here's this big difference is now I just open up the computer or pull out the tablet and everyone would have the same response. Why are you asking the travel agent? Get online. See what's out there. See what information's available. And this idea coincides very much when we te- think about the whole, right, the, the, now, the, the next new big thing that's mm-hmm. – not in new anymore, hmm. you know, learner autonomy, learner independence, right? Mm-hmm. Learner monitored behaviors. It's simply that people were going to have to start looking at how, isn't it interesting how that coincides with the incredible access to information we have now? Hmm. And that, right, if anybody said, when my daughter says, dad, how do I do this on the computer? I just go Google it. Why <laughs> <laughs> ask me? Yeah, why are you? The answer is right just, there. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm going to Google it for you, right? So, this idea that it's a new world and there are different ways of getting information. And I think our role as helping people just be more independent, be more autonomous, and trying to just nudge them in different directions is, I think, the biggest change rather than my feeling like I had to lead. Yeah. And I ain't don't it, feel I have to do any leading anymore. Yeah, ain't it fun? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. You know, and it's nice to be in a job where we get great vacations, but I don't regret the end of the vacation. I got all kind of mixed feelings here. I just I still have a sore back from that nine inches of snow. Oh, that's right. You're in Chicago with <laughs> that's a lot right. of snow. Yeah, usually I start off like, yeah, this is Tony, you know, it's like in Japan. Oh, this is Tony in Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> in the basement, in the basement of my, of the old homestead. And um, yeah, they say, they, they condense the whole three weeks of winter to coincide with my visit here. So we're having fun. But I love it. Always good to get away. So it looks like it's time to wrap up. Right. So... Basically, what we've done is covered how Japan has changed since we've been here, changes in the culture, the position of Japan in the world. We've looked at and talked a little bit about how students have changed and how we've changed. And that basically our teaching is a combination. I think the changes in our teaching are a combination of our growth from our experiences in the classroom and the needs of our students. So basically, I think, you know, it's like right now, um, before the first class, um, yeah, I mean, take a look at what you're doing. Uh, take a look at your materials. Take a look at how you think about your classes. Think about, take a look at how you think about yourself in relationship with your classes, uh, the, that relationship itself, how you interact, um, what's working for you, what's not. Um, it's, it's not the same place, not the same role. It's not the same time as it was five six years ago tweak what you got to um because tweaking you you won't you won't have a chance until august (laughs) like you 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 take a take a take a deep breath and it's too late so now is the time and um 
uh, yeah, things are changing. And look at last year. Look and see what worked, what didn't, what you got, what you got to tweak, and and do it now. And don't reinvent the wheel. No need it's for probably that. somebody out there who you know has done it better than I've done it, or you've done it, or we've mm-hmm. done it. And if you can find that, use that. Yep. Use that. Yep. Right. And don't reinvent the wheel, but do evaluate. And there's and there's another topic for the future. Yes, it is. How to find that okay. stuff. Okay. How, yeah, how to find that stuff. Who are Just we? Just Google it. Google it. Google it. So who are we? TwoTeachersTalking.com. That is our webpage. And uh, if you feel moved to uh, give us some feedback and complain or uh, offer Tell some Tell us that we're rambling things, on and yeah, on and yeah, on. Yeah, say, well, these are great things, but I wish you could make them like 30 minutes or 20 minutes. Yeah, why do you guys take an hour <laughs> and 10 minutes to do something that should only take 10 minutes? There's only 10 minutes of content here, guys. Come on, get it together. Two teachers talking at gmail.com. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring it on. Podcast is two teachers. Two teachers talking on and on and on. Okay, so this is Charles Wiz, and I'm still in Japan in the Kobe Osaka area. And Tony Silva in chilly, chilly but thawing Chicago. Basement. Yeah. And we will be talking with you soon. Alrighty. righty.